Hopefully, George is looking down right now and saying, there's a great thing that's happening for our country. There's a great day for him. It's a great day for everybody. Excuse me? It's not a great day for George Floyd. He's dead, you moron. From Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, elsewhere in California on KFOI Red Bluff Redding, KKRN Round Mountain, KGOE Eureka, in Oregon on KYAQ on the Central Coast, KSO in Cottage Grove and KEPW in Eugene, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, WLRI, Maui, Hawaii, KAKU, Columbus, Ohio, WGRN, Palinville, New York, WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan, WPRR, New Orleans, Louisiana, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire, WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ, Seattle, Washington, KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin, WADR, Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM 950, KTNF, and coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internet, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, blanketing the globe five days a week, usually hosted by Brad Friedman of Bradblog.com, but today, once again, you got me. I'm Nicole Sandler, host of The Nicole Sandler Show, based at NicoleSandler.com, taking over the fill-in duties on what's turned out to be a pretty weird day, as you can tell from the clip I played right at the start. Yes, so the jobs numbers came out, and they were expected to show an unemployment rate in the neighborhood of 20%. But everyone was surprised that the federal unemployment rate actually declined, from 14.7% in April to 13.3% in May, a sign that the economy is improving quicker than economists had projected. However, when you look a little more closely, experts say the gain was likely due to the PPP funds finally being available, as most of those gains were actually furloughed employees going back on the payroll. But those numbers are also private sector jobs. We lost another 600,000 government jobs last month, and public employment is down more than 1.5 million in two months. Economists do agree that getting back to normal will take longer and be more challenging than recessions of the past. But Donald Trump took it differently and summoned the press to the Rose Garden so he could ramble incoherently for over an hour and, yes, actually say that George Floyd was having a great day. Your ears weren't deceiving you. Hopefully George is looking down right now and saying there's a great thing that's happening for our country. What? There's a great day for him. It's a great day oh for God. everybody. No, it isn't. It's a great day for everybody. This is a great, great day <laughs> in terms of equality. On what planet does he live? Donald Trump, as I said, rambled incoherently for over an hour about everything, even proclaiming this is a great day for George Floyd, a man who was killed by police just about a week and a half ago. He didn't take any questions. And as he was heading over to sign whatever executive order he was signing today, Yamiche Alcindor, 
of PBS NewsHour tried to ask him a question. Of course, he shut her down and even put his finger over his mouth in a shushing motion. Unbelievable. People standing alongside of me, I want to thank them so much. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. I'd like to sign this bill. This is a very different thing. And by the way, what's happened to our country and what you now see has been happening is the greatest thing that can happen. What? For race relations. Oh my for God. The African American community. For the Asian American. For the Hispanic American. He's delusional. For women, for everything. What's your plan? Because our country is so strong. And that's what my plan is. We're going to have the strongest economy in the world. We almost are there now. We had the strongest economy anywhere in the world, and now we're going to have an economy that's even stronger. Sir, how, sir, how, how would a better economy? I'd like to sign this. Yeah, just to follow up, how would a better economy have protected George Floyd? Sure, I'll ask after. Will you take questions after, sir? No, of course he won't. Black unemployment went up by one by 0.1 percent. Asian Americans unemployment went up by 0.5 percent. How is that a victory? You are something. How is that a victory? Uh, thank you very much. You are something, he said to her when she asked. He's touting this as a great day. And Yamichel Sindor is saying, well, black unemployment went up. Asian American unemployment went up. How can you say this is a great day? And he says, goodbye. I'm not answering. That is Donald Trump's America. Aren't we proud? There's a lot more news to get to today. But the bottom line is we're in a weird kind of horrible place in American history. There are protests from sea to shining sea over police brutality. And in recent days, we've seen that brutality spread to where they're not only beating up on and in some cases killing unarmed black people. Now they're indiscriminately brutalizing peaceful protesters in city after city after city. We'll get to some of that. But the, the, the subject of racism is in the forefront. And it's not only being challenged here in the United States, but around the world. We're seeing protests in cities globally, from London to Amsterdam and beyond. And I'm going to play for you a song. I've been featuring on my show a, a humorous song, a, a comedy, a parody at the beginning of each program hoping to get a laugh or two in before things invariably turn very serious. One woman who's been doing amazing videos and song parodies is named Shirley Serban, and she lives in New Zealand. I actually spoke to her on my program in my quarantine calling segments where I reached out to people, you know, in quarantine all around the world. And she's been really prolific in making very funny, very creative really well done song parodies, mostly dealing with the, the coronavirus pandemic. Well, this time she turned a little more serious. And just so you know, Shirley Serban, her day job is she's the principal of a small school in New Zealand. Her side job is she's a photographer. That's what her website is. But while she's been quarantining at home, she's been making these wonderful song parodies. Well, today, it's not so much funny 
although it does have its moments, but her parody of Alanis Morissette's ironic, called Isn't It Moronic, deals with racism. Inspired by what's going on in the U.S., she's looking at things in New Zealand. Have a listen. Hey, yeah, yeah. Golly walk given for a birthday. Well, we loved them as kids, so that must make them okay. It's a MAGA hat at a BLM parade. I'm just making them think, why should they feel betrayed? And isn't it moronic? Don't you think? It's like free speech As a license to hurt It's not seeing each other For our true worth It's not recognizing White privilege Please give this thought reconsider Hand it on a plate With little needs to try I Full stomach, a good school, and a home warm and dry. Have your parents fund your university. Get the job of your dreams and say, well, it's all due to me. And isn't it moronic? Don't you think? It's like free speech as a license to hurt is not seeing each other for our true worth is not recognizing white privilege please give this thought reconsider well truth has a funny way Sneaking up on you and shaking everything you've always thought has been right. And truth has a funny way of pointing it out, and you find your worldview was wrong, but you know it's never too late to change. Get stopped for speeding, just a warning this time. Wear your hoodie in a store. But you get no evil eye And take a walk at night No one crosses the street Have your name pronounced right By everyone you meet And isn't it moronic? Don't you think? A little too moronic Yeah, I really do think it's like free speech As a license to hurt It's not seeing each other For our true worth It's not recognizing White privilege Please give this thought reconsider Well, truth has a funny way Sneaking up on you and shaking everything you've always thought has been right. And truth has a funny, funny way of pointing it out. 
pointing it out. Quite poignant. That is Shirley Serban with her parody of Alanis Morissette's Ironic, calling out racism in New Zealand, inspired by what's going on over here. All right, uh, we've got lots more news to get to today. And of course, an interview with John Nichols, whose new book is called The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, The Enduring Legacy of Henry Wallace's Anti-Fascist, Anti-Racist Politics. That's all coming up. I'm Nicole Sandler. This is the broadcast. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. It's been a long, a long time coming, but I know a change gonna come. It's Nicole Sandler back with you, filling in for Brad and Desi on the Bradcast. And there's a lot of news to get to today, so we will. But we got to start with an event that happened just uh, the other day. By now, we've all seen numerous videos of police physically attacking protesters without provocation. One graphic video that went viral Thursday night shows two cops in Buffalo, New York, pushing a 75-year-old man, causing him to fall to the ground and hit his head on the pavement. Blood is seen spilling out of his ear. Now, the good news is we hear the, the man's in the hospital with a head injury, but he will recover. We've also learned that the incident report initially said that the man was injured when he, quote, tripped and fell during a, quote, skirmish involving protesters. So falsifying a police report on top of everything else. And wait, there's more. On Friday, we learned a little more about the the man who was hurt. His name is Martin Gugino. And (laughs) apparently the, the two cops who are seen in the video pushing him have been suspended without pay. So they're part of the emergency response team in the Buffalo Police Department. And now we learn that the entire emergency response team has resigned from the team. A total of 57 officers as a show of support for the officers who were suspended without pay after shoving 75-year-old Martin Gugino to the ground. They're all still employed, but no longer on the emergency response team. This is a problem. Every one of those 57 officers should be fired. 
immediately. It's disgusting. And this is happening in the backdrop as people are mourning the death of George Floyd. It was just Thursday when hundreds of people joined family members to mourn George Floyd at the first of three memorial services scheduled, happening more than a week after he died in Minneapolis police custody. Civil rights activist Al Sharpton eulogized Floyd, saying, Get your rest, George. You changed the world. Sharpton closed his eulogy by asking mourners to stand in silence for 8 minutes and 46 seconds. That's how long a white police officer pinned his knee on the unarmed, handcuffed black man's neck. By the way, the 8 minutes and 46 seconds of silence was carried live by MSNBC and a few others, so I give them credit for that. Because 8 minutes and 46 seconds is a long time. Sharpton also called for social change, supporting protests around the nation against systemic racism and excessive police force against African Americans. Ever since 401 years ago, the reason we could never be who we wanted and dreamed to be in is you kept your knee on our neck. We were smarter than the underfunded schools you put us in, but you had your knee on our neck. We could run corporations and not hustle in the street, but you had your knee on our neck. We had creative skills. We could do whatever anybody else could do. But we couldn't get your knee off our neck. What happened to Floyd happens every day in this country, in education, in health services, and in every area of American life. It's time for us to stand up in George's name and say, get your knee off our necks. Sharpton also announced plans for a march on Washington in late August to be led by the families of black people killed by police and is intended to coincide with the anniversary of the historic 1963 civil rights demonstration. Meanwhile, in Washington, workers have put up a new line of fencing around the White House, ostensibly in preparation for another weekend of demonstrations in Floyd's name. Speaker Nancy Pelosi said House Democrats will unveil a sweeping bill next week that includes police reforms. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy actually signaled that Republicans are willing to work on such a measure. Pelosi on Thursday also demanded that Donald Trump clarify the deployment of unidentified law enforcement in Washington, D.C. She joined with D.C. Mayor Bowser in saying all law enforcement personnel should be identifiable as to department, branch, or specialty while in uniform on D.C. streets. Some of these forces deployed in the Capitol in recent days have been seen without any identifying labels on their uniforms, raising questions about which law enforcement agencies they represent. The ACLU and Black Lives Matter have sued the Trump administration for what the groups called an unconstitutional and frankly criminal attack on protesters outside the White House this week ahead of Trump's church photo op. The federal lawsuit, filed on behalf of five demonstrators, comes after law enforcement used gas canisters 
and flashbang grenades to disperse largely peaceful crowds gathered in Lafayette Square on Monday to protest the Minneapolis police killing of George Floyd. There have also been countless reports of the police attacking journalists simply doing their jobs. The U.S. Press Freedom Tracker has now counted more than 300 such incidents since the unrest began last week, saying the total number includes 49-plus arrests, 192 assaults, 42 equipment-slash-newsroom damage. Infringements on the press have been reported in 33 states. Minneapolis tops the list of cities with 61 violations, followed by D.C. with 24, L.A. with 17, New York City with 16, and Denver with 11. The three men charged with killing Ahmoud Arbery in Georgia were in court Thursday. A Georgia Bureau of Investigation agent testified that William Bryan, he's the guy who shot the video we've all by now seen and is a defendant in the case, told police that he heard Travis McMichael hurl a profane slur at Arbery when he lay bleeding on the ground after shooting him three times with a shotgun. The investigator also said the three men charged in Arbery's death engaged in an elaborate chase with the unarmed black man, hitting him with a truck as he tried to escape them. Attorneys for the three men involved say they did nothing illegal. Right. In a stunning reversal of its position, the New York Times said Thursday evening that an op-ed from Republican Senator Tom Cotton did not meet its standards. The statement came just hours after editorial page editor James Bennett defended publishing the piece amid mounting outrage from staff. The New York Times is holding a town hall Friday as reporters have gone public in criticizing the op-ed page for running Cotton's Bring in the Military editorial. Think the media is not lopsided enough? Well, the Senate on Thursday confirmed Michael Pack, a conservative filmmaker who Trump has said he hopes will dictate more favorable news coverage of his administration, to lead the independent agency in charge of state-funded media outlets, most notably the Voice of America. On the new cover of Time magazine, for the first time, the red border includes the names of people, 35 black men and women whose deaths in many cases by police, were the result of systemic racism. Here's a question. Has the Republican dam been breached? Military brass, both current and former, are rising up against Donald Trump. Just this week, John Kelly and Jim Mattis have publicly castigated him. Martin Dempsey criticized him. Various military commanders have felt it necessary to remind the troops what their mission is, including Mark Milley, the current chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who sent a letter and Army Secretary Ryan McCarthy, who posted a video. Meanwhile, at least one Republican senator has, well, maybe had enough. Lisa Murkowski of Alaska took the big step Thursday of saying that she was struggling with whether she could vote for Trump's re-election. A few hours later, the idiot said he'd campaign against her regardless of whether her opponent had a pulse. But Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa placed a hold on two of Trump's nominees in a push for explanations of watchdog firings. Grassley said his hold on Christopher Miller for director of the National Counterterrorism Center will remain in place until he gets an explanation for the firing of the intelligence community's Inspector General Michael Atkinson. 
and his hold on Marshall Billingsley's nomination to be Undersecretary for Arms Control and International Security at the State Department will remain until he gets sufficient reasons for the firing of State Department Inspector General Steve Linick. Grassley tweeted, quote, I'm placing holds on two Trump administration nominees until I get reasons for firing two agency watchdogs as required by law. Not the first time I've raised alarms when administrations flout Inspector General protection law. Obama did same and got same earful from me. All I want is a reason for firing these people. Checks and balances. Good on Grassley, but this leads me to wonder why no Democratic senator has put a hold on some of Trump's most egregious judicial nominees. So it's a baby step, but it's really only two small cracks in a much bigger picture. The Senate floor got hot Thursday as three senators clashed over a bill that would make lynching a federal crime. In a testy exchange on the Senate floor Thursday, Senators Cory Booker and Kamala Harris pleaded with Republican Rand Paul of Kentucky to stand down and allow their legislation to pass. The bill, the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act, named after the 14-year-old black teenager who was brutally murdered in 1955 and has broad bipartisan support. And you might not realize it due to the news coverage of the protests, but the U.S. recorded a 1,000 more coronavirus deaths on Thursday, bringing the nationwide death toll to more than 108,000. I hate to say it, but with all the protests going on, there's bound to be some spreading of the disease. And of course, the way the administration is treating it as if the threat is gone, there's bound to be a resurgence. So please stay safe. All right, quick time out. We'll come back on the other side with John Nichols of The Nation to talk about the fight for the soul of the Democratic Party. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today on the broadcast. Five major corporations now own over 80% of all media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Your support helps us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations across the country. You can make a real difference by supporting independent media. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. Join us at bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. From the war against disorder, from the sirens night and day, from the fires of the homeless, from the ashes of the gay, democracy is coming to the USA. It's Nicole Sandler back with you, your guest host on the broadcast. And as promised, I have a wonderful guest for you today. John Nichols, of course, is the national affairs correspondent for The Nation magazine. He also writes in a number of other places like The Progressive and In These Times. He's the author of a number of books, including The Death and Life of American Journalism, The Genius of Impeachment, The S-Word, and his newest book is called The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, The Enduring Legacy of Henry Wallace's anti-fascist, anti-racist politics. Oh, John Nichols, hello and welcome to the show and thank you so much for being here today. 
It's a great pleasure to be with you, my friend. What a week this has been, John Nichols. I really fear for the future of the country. You know, your book is The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party. I think we're in a fight, and that is a fight that we're having and that we need to have. But I think the even bigger fight right now is the soul for this nation and whether or not it lives on or, you know, goes away. Well, I think this nation will survive. It's just the quality of that survival. And whether it takes the turn it needs to away from some unimaginably bad politics in the moment, and also, frankly, you know, toward addressing the issues that we've long left unaddressed, uh, that's the open question. And I'm probably about as scared as you are. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I worry a lot about a couple of things. First off, the way in which uh, we we leave fundamental issues unaddressed, and then they come back to haunt us in the in the most profound ways. And that's clearly true: the structural racism, police violence, police brutality. We're seeing that just in in the last couple of days, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also um, the way in which, frankly, our media is manipulated by and exploited by uh, Donald Trump and yeah. people like him. Uh, and, and when you put those things together, you get a very volatile circumstance. Um, and I think that's, that is what we are looking at right now. Uh, it is sometimes hard to keep up with all of the, the fundamental challenges that are coming our way. Yeah. Oh, it most definitely is. You know, uh, one of the challenges, look, I, I, um, I was so fed up this morning and so disgusted that I, you know, I made one of my, my, my tweets just sort of shaking my finger at everyone. And I said, look, I, I'm not thrilled that Joe Biden, I don't have it in front of me, but basically, yes, I'm not happy that Joe Biden is the nominee. I don't care how awful he is. And he is. We need to vote to get Donald Trump out of office, basically is what I said. And for my troubles, I've been called name. I, I didn't know that Karen was a dirty word, but apparently it's a pejorative for it, white it women. Has, apparently, and I feel I feel for uh, the many Karens. Yeah, so do I. So, but I've been called a yeah. Karen by people today who are self-proclaimed progressives and Bernie Sanders supporters who just cannot vote for Joe Biden, even if it's to take Donald Trump out. I, I just don't understand. And so this is how they fight back. They call me a, a, a name. <laughs> that's I, My name's Nicole, not Karen. You can call me whatever you want, I guess. But really? So you stoop to Trumpian levels and name calling in order to fight back? And, and if you're such a big Bernie Sanders fan, why don't you listen to what the man is saying? And we need to get Donald Trump out of office because he's the most dangerous president in our lifetimes. Yeah, and I think I think he can reconcile these two things. Uh, you know, I, I happen to be in the camp that says that um, you can remain a Bernie Sanders fan mm-hmm. and you can still see the fundamental necessity to to get rid of Donald Trump. Got to get rid of um, Donald Trump. And, and in fact, to be honest, I, one of the, the arguments I make in the book, and, and frankly, one of the arguments I, I make more broadly in a lot of what I write, is that uh, you need that progressive flank, uh, challenging, mm-hmm. objecting, mm-hmm. pushing, uh, not just jumping on board and saying, oh, yeah, this is the greatest thing going. Uh, acknowledging the flaws, but also, you know, seeking to make better, um, in this case, the, the, the preferable nominee, right. uh, that being the nominee, frankly, whoever the Democratic nominee would be, it would be the preferable nominee over Donald Trump. 
Um, and and I, I worry sometimes that we lose sight of uh, the vital importance of addressing the immediate threats that we face um, and doing so with some perspective. And that means that we can say at the same time, yeah, it's good to get rid of Trump. Mm -hmm. uh, and at the same time, that uh, the Democratic Party needs to fundamentally change and become a much more progressive party. Without those, a doubt. Those two thoughts can be reconciled. Uh-huh. Well, the book, John Nichols, is The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party. Um, unfortunately, it was published the beginning of April when we were all sort of shut in, so it's been sort of a subdued release. Um, but, but I'm yeah. glad I have the chance to talk to you about it because we are at this uh, crossroads, I guess, in the Democratic Party, but that we've been here before. And your book begins with, uh, well, the preface is why we concern ourselves with the history of political parties. And well, why do we, John Nichols? Well, because political parties uh, are, are not static. They change. They evolve. And um, if we understand political parties, we often get the answers to the very frustrating questions we face as regards politicians. Um, we wonder why politicians fall short, why they don't do the things that we expected them to do. And very often it is because there is, and I say this as politely as I can, a rot within political parties, i.e. that they um, are disinclined to be bold. They are disinclined to push for big change. And thus, when a maybe a, a change agent is elected, somebody that you're very excited about, and you really think they're going to make fundamental change, um, they don't have a movement behind them. They don't have a movement party that says, yeah, let's we got to go do this. Mm -hmm. Now, the interesting thing is that the Republican Party um, has become a movement of a sort. Yeah, um, yeah. And it's scary. Uh, it's extreme. Uh, it's wrongheaded, to my view. Uh, but they, at least you know what you're going to get. Right. If you elect a Republican president, you are going to get very right wing judges. That's right. And, and they're doing, look, they're trying to talk Clarence Thomas into retiring early so that Trump can replace him on the Supreme Court. Now, keep in mind that it's we're six months away from the election, not a year where we were when um, Scalia died and Mitch McConnell and the Republicans wouldn't let Obama replace it. And he said, OK. I guess I'll just sit here yeah. and twiddle my thumbs, which really well, still pisses me off. Well, in fairness to Obama, he did try. I mean, did he, he? Actually, you know, made an argument. Yeah, I think he made an effort there. But um, the fact of the matter is that when you don't have a movement party, mm -hmm. um, you know, that that goes to the map overall on these things, um, it, it often doesn't matter what, how good a speech a president makes. Right. 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 And and so I'm I am of the camp that says that political parties have to have, they, they have to believe in something. They have to be about something. And so when I was writing the book, you know, with this question of why we concern ourselves with the history of political parties, I, I started out thinking about Trump. I wanted to figure out how Trump became possible in our politics. Uh -huh. And initially that led me to think about writing about the Republican Party. But more and more I came to the conclusion that you get a Trump when there's a void. Right. Mm -hmm. When you don't have a sufficient 
um, alternative, right? Yeah. And where the space, where there's some space open uh, that shouldn't be open. And, uh, and so I started to look at the Democratic Party and I started to ask this question of why was the party that uh, Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal uh, proved to be so successful with, the party that that for actually decades afterwards kind of traded on the, the strength of the New Deal. Yeah. Um, and, and frankly, a party that at one time, 75 years ago, 80 years ago, seemed to be the visionary force in our politics, the definitional visionary force in our politics. Why did it cease to be that? Why did it become um, a softer force, a force that, that people could really say, oh, there's not much difference between Democrats and Republicans. Money. Now I happen to think there's a lot more difference. Uh-huh. Money is a big part of the answer, but also a status quo that is inclined toward uh, seeking power without purpose. And, and this is a big deal. Um, you want the power to govern, um, so that you can actually do big things. Mm. When you have a party that simply wants the power to govern, but doesn't seem to have an inclination to do big things, um, that's where problems come into play. And so it is absurd that the Democratic Party hasn't been fighting for 75 years uh-huh. for single-payer Medicare for all. Uh-huh. It's not, it shouldn't be a new idea, no. right? No, it, it is isn't. absurd right. that the Democratic Party has come to power repeatedly um, over the years and not overturned Taft-Hartley. And mm-hmm. gotten rid of um, the barriers to labor union organizing in this country. Yep. It is absurd that the Democratic Party that relies overwhelmingly on African American votes and the votes of Latinos and others um, hasn't had a full court press agenda on behalf of racial justice mm-hmm. as well as economic and social justice. I mean, and that includes criminal justice reform and all the other elements of that uh, vision. So, you know, what, what you're really talking about is uh, a Democratic Party that left so much space, right, that our politics began to drift away from it. Mm-hmm. That's, I'm not trying to suggest that people decide to go vote for Trump. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is it's just that that there wasn't a, a sufficient contrast in the minds of some people even to come and vote. Right. Well, so but, and we, because we part of that shockingly low turnout election. Yeah. Well, part of that is because so many people feel like they're the politicians, the candidates don't speak to them. I get why progressives are repelled by the idea of voting for Joe Biden. Frankly, I'll be voting against Donald Trump it, or hopefully I'll be voting for Vice President Elizabeth Warren. My vote will not be for Joe Biden, but it'll be for the future of this nation to get rid of the madman, psychopath, narcissist, megalomaniac who's occupying the Oval Office right now. I think it's that important. But then let's get back to the Democratic Party, where I feel like I don't have a home here because it seems like my wants and needs are ignored by the the power players within the party. And right now, it's the elder uh, uh, guard. It's it's the Chuck Schumer's and Nancy Pelosi's who, frankly, I think it's time for them to move on because they, d- the the candidates they are choosing, especially uh, Chuck Schumer, to be the the U.S. Senate 
uh, Democratic nominees are not the ones I want. And he doesn't understand that it's about letting the people vote. We can look at Colorado, where there's a primary for the Senate race. The party, Chuck Schumer, has anointed uh, John Hickenlooper. He's our candidate. Well, no, there's still a primary taking place in a few weeks. And uh, frankly, I'd rather see Andrew Romanoff in there. But Chuck Schumer says, no, he's our guy. That's not what the Democratic Party is supposed to be about, is it? Absolutely. Look, this is a huge problem, and I write a lot about it in the book. Um, you know, again and again and again, throughout the last 75 years, since you know the end of FDR's tenure, um, there's been an effort to push aside the, the visionaries. Mm-hmm. And yes, many of these people are progressives. But, uh, but the bottom line is, when you push aside the more progressive candidate, you're not just pushing aside, you know, somebody who's ideologically in a certain place. Usually you are pushing aside someone who is saying, here's what needs to be done now. Here's what's necessary. This is what we have to be about. Mm-hmm. And you're pushing them aside for someone who says, oh, maybe we can do, you know, do it a little softer, maybe do a little less. <laughs> right. 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 And so you, you have, in the case of my book, you know, 1944, Henry Wallace. Mm-hmm. saying that racism was a form of Americanized fascism, saying that we had to uh, not just win the war abroad, but then come home and win a fight against racism and segregation and the poll tax uh, and discrimination in the United States, saying that in 1944, wow. saying that we had to have an equal rights uh, amendment for women and that the women who had gone into the industries during World War II needed to be protected so that they could have jobs and economic security, just like men, in the aftermath of World War II. Talking about a massive employment program, so mm-hmm. that the vets who came home could have jobs. Talking about a housing program, so that families you know, who had really put their lives on hold during the war could, could start to get housing. He, was, he had a big, bold agenda. They pushed him aside, and they replaced him with Harry Truman. Not a horrible yep. guy, right? but with a much softer agenda, mm-hmm. much weaker agenda, and you know what happened in 1946? They lost their congressional authority. Yep. For the first time since wow. 1932. Wow. Right? And, and then, so you say, oh, well, that's just one example, John. They're, you know, that could, that's an oddball thing. You know, maybe Wallace was a bad guy, or Truman was better than you think, or whatever. No. 1976, Jimmy Carter gets elected over more progressive candidates, right? Yep. Comes in to govern. Uh, talks about national malaise and things like that. He's a he's a decent man who we love now, but as president was quite unfocused. 1978 loses a lot of his congressional authority, very weakened by the midterm elections. 1992, Bill Clinton becomes president of the United States. He's got solid House and Senate majorities. He does NAFTA and issues that that deeply offend the labor base that did so much to elect him. 1994, a lot of people stay home. Clinton uh, loses his governing power in Congress. Wow. Wow. 2008, Barack Obama elected as a visionary <laughs> figure and somebody who excited and engaged Aww. so many people does some great things, right? And I give him credit for many of the things he did, but it, you know, is not sufficient to excite, mobilize, energize. And in 2010, he loses his governing power because the Congress shifts. And, you know, how does that happen again and again and again? You can blame Truman or you can blame Carter. Or you could blame Clinton or you could blame Obama. I don't. 
while I have criticisms of, of these figures along the way, I blame a Democratic Party that doesn't say, when you get elected president of the United States, here's the things we're going to do. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's at a certain, if, if it's all about personalities, right? If it's just, oh, here's this wonderful person or here's this better person, what we lose sight of is that voting for a party ought to mean something. Conservatives actually believe voting Republican means something, yeah, right? right? It's, right. It, and, and, you know, that's, people always wrestle with this question. Why do, you know, Christian fundamentalists, you know, people who, you know, really do, are, are very, very strict in their, their interpretation of the Bible and how you should live your life, how could they possibly vote for Donald Trump, right? Right. You know, multi, multiple marriages, you know, scandals, the whole bit. Well, it's not hard at all. Because they're not voting for Donald Trump. They're voting for a Republican president. They know what it means to have a Republican president, period. Yeah. And you, you just put the candidate in. They know what they're going to get. They're going to get their judges. They're going to get, yes. you know, in the case of right. other players, perhaps corporate types. They exactly. Get they get. And you can say and, that the, the Republicans, at least they're, they're I think the, the people they've elected have been horrific, but they've done the job that they were elected to do. They did exactly what they wanted them to do, whether it's, you know, uh, passing tax cuts or uh, naming tons of conservative judges to pack the bench. They are yeah. they are doing what they were elected to do. And we still don't know what the Democrats are about. Well, and that's it. You know, it's a, a several early in Trump's presidency. I, I do a lot of work in Germany and a German think tank asked me to, you know, explain Trump. <laughs> and I said, you know, and I wrote a piece of the 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 oddly coherent political philosophy of Donald Trump. Because people think he's like erratic and crazy, and he is. No mm-hmm. question of that. Mm-hmm. But do you know what's really coherent? What is Delivering on those conservative judges. Yep. Delivering on conservative social policies, especially as regards education. Delivering for the very, very wealthy. Delivering for corporate interests. Yeah. I mean, it's he's doing exactly, exactly what Mike Pence would do yep. if he could. He's doing exactly what all the other people he beat for the nomination would do if they could. Now, Trump's crazier, more extreme, more frightening, more troublesome from the standpoint of Democratic norms. But the bottom line is he'll hold a large portion of his base because he does what they want a Republican president to do. I promise you, I promise you, if Democrats developed a much more coherent strategy and a more coherent message if they took risks and if they aim toward the future, you know, saying we're going to we're going to address the necessary issues now and maybe we'll lose an election now and again. But boy, when we get power, we're going to do it. Yeah. Um, You'd be shocked by how loyal uh, masses of voters. I agree. Many, many more voters would become. And I think that's why Bernie Sanders hit such a chord with so many people around the country, because he was a he is a man of action. He's got big ideas and he's not afraid to say it and to to be the progressive that he is. Um, John Nichols, I want to ask you, you you put Henry Wallace in the in the title, in the subtitle of the book. It's the fight for the soul of the Democratic Party, the enduring legacy of Henry Wallace's anti-fascist, anti-racist policies. You know, when we think of um, the FDR administration, we think of FDR. We may even think of Francis Perkins. Um, But but Henry Wallace 
was not exactly a household name. Many of us believe he should be, more so, and so I'm glad you're elevating him here. For those who don't know much about Henry Wallace, because after all, vice presidents in history never got a whole lot of attention, who was Henry Wallace and why should we be uh, talking about him now? Well, Henry Wallace was a uh, a great campaigner for um, the agricultural, uh, you know, community in this country. He came out of farm country, born in rural Iowa. He edited a farm publication and um, was actually a liberal Republican. Mm. They used to have those. Uh-huh. And Franklin Roosevelt went out and met with him in the uh, early 1930s, where they talked to each other, got to know each other. And uh, Roosevelt convinced Wallace to campaign for him in 1932 on a promise that they would revitalize farm country. Um, uh, Wallace did that. And when Roosevelt became president, he made Wallace his secretary of agriculture. In those days, the Department of Agriculture was the dynamic force. This is where the big New Deal ideas mm. spun out of. Mm-hmm. And Wallace became a hero, not just to you know impoverished farmers and people in rural areas. He became a hero to the unions. Uh, to, you know, all sorts of folks because he had been such a dynamic, passionate New Dealer. Roosevelt made him vice president in 1940 because he wanted to, you know, move the party and the ticket to the left. There was no question of that. Roosevelt was clear about that. Um, And Wallace came in and was an incredibly dynamic vice president, but incredibly controversial. Hmm. Uh, 1943, when there was a race riot in uh, Detroit, he flew to Detroit and spoke to a mass rally of uh, union members, African-Americans, Latinos, and white workers. And he said to them that racism, that, you know, a, the violence that extended from racism uh, was a form of Americanized fascism. Uh-huh. He essentially said to them, if, you're, if, we're, if you are against the Nazis, right, if you're against what's going on uh, overseas, then you cannot accept this here at home. Mm-hmm. Now, that kind of talk in 1943 earned him a lot of enemies. Wow. The Southern segregationists got furious at him, and they were still a huge force in the party. The bankers and the big city bosses didn't like him because he was very pro-union. Uh, the New York Times criticized him. They said he was dividing the country during the war effort. Um, and a big effort was made to push him off the ticket. Roosevelt let an open convention go forward in 1944 and on the first ballot Wallace won, but they then, they, they then maneuvered successfully um, to push him aside. You mean the super delegates, super delegates came into play. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't quite super delegates in those days. Actually, the story is a chapter in the book. It's an incredible story. Um, They, uh, he came to Chicago. They wouldn't let him, the bosses wouldn't let him speak at the convention. Finally, they said, well, you can second Roosevelt's nomination. He gave a speech that was so powerful, so exciting, so energizing that the convention went wild. Wow. And there was a, a huge demand to renominate him. And finally, as the night went on and, and the, the passion for renominating him got stronger, um, there was an effort by Claude Pepper, the, uh, who was then the senator from Florida. Florida. Yeah. Uh, he was rushing to the stage to, to call for a vote by acclamation to renominate uh, Wallace wow. for vice president. If he'd gotten to the stage, it, he, it would have succeeded. There's no doubt of that. But um, the bosses gaveled the convention out of order. They <gasps> shut it down rather than allow the vote. And they delayed. They then changed all the tickets to the convention. They 
Um, I didn't know, know Chuck Schumer. All kinds of people who had been there. Wow. And nominated somebody else the next day. I didn't know Chuck Schumer was that old. Yeah, it wasn't Chuck Schumer. I know. I'm um, just <laughs> it was. It was. And this is the tragedy of it. Yeah. It was big city bosses, mm-hmm. other segregationists, mm-hmm. and people who were tied to the bankers. And it was late night. It was well into 1944. They knew Franklin Roosevelt was an aging uh, president with mm-hmm. a lot of health problems. Mm-hmm. They were quite conscious of the possibility that Roosevelt would die. Uh, and they wanted to make sure that the person who succeeded him would take them backward, yeah. not forward, i.e., and that didn't mean get rid of the whole New Deal. These weren't extreme right-wingers, uh, except some of the segregationists. But some of the big city bosses were not that bad, you know, some of their politics. But they just didn't want that great forward push. They didn't want to keep on fighting, if you will. And the end result was that they severely weakened the party. Um, the truth is they lost their congressional power in 46. In 48, Truman was reelected. And Wallace ran as an independent and failed miserably. Mm. And, you know, so the party was torn apart. But Truman survived in 48. But here's the important thing to understand. By, you know, 49 into 50, Truman was weakened severely. Um, He was defeated in, or he wasn't defeated. He, you know, stood down in 1952. Uh, Democrats lost uh, the presidency. They lost Congress. They Mm. would, you know, sometimes struggle back in that. But, I mean, the party was a party that had been on an incredible roll, right, doing everything with the New Deal, um, ended up, you know, as an incredibly weakened uh, party that that in many ways lost its focus. Um, and sometimes it found its focus along the way. There's no question, 1964, uh-huh. uh, an incredible victory. And what did you get? Now, just to give you an example of what I'm talking about here. Um, in 1964, Lyndon Johnson didn't look to his right, but looked to his left to choose the vice president, chose Hubert Humphrey, mm-hmm. um, and ran not a conservative campaign, but a bold and, and very, very progressive focused campaign. Um, and what did you get from Lyndon Johnson in that period? Uh, constitutional amendment to eliminate the poll tax, right? the Civil Rights Act, right. the Voting Rights Act, That's right. Medicare, yep. Medicaid, yep. the War Social, on Poverty, yep. Yep. the launch That's of right. many of our initial consumer protections, the launch of many mm-hmm. of our initial environmental protections, and we even got public broadcasting. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this is what happens when you actually try. Right. You know, and- it's it, it's not that it's not that complicated, right? And Johnson and yet, would be would be recognized, I think, as one of our great progressive presidents, if not for the Vietnam War. That, and that's one of the key elements that I come that I focus on in the book, because what Wallace preached back in the 1940s was that you had a twofold responsibility. You had to address the fundamental structural challenges at home mm-hmm. that included structural racism, structural sexism, and he was talking about this in the 40s. Yeah. And he said, you've wow. got to address these things at home, but you also have to focus on trying to achieve peace internationally. You have to focus, and this is a guy who's a big supporter of World War II, but he didn't want another war. Mm-hmm. And he didn't want a Cold War. He said, you got to look at diplomacy and you know, better international relations and better efforts at cooperation. Why? It was very, very simple. He said, if you start to get involved in all sorts of wars abroad, you're going to end up in a situation where you cannot maintain the progress at home. Hmm. He anticipated 
many of the things that a Philip Randolph and ultimately uh, the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. said about, you know, in 1967, King's incredible speech on, um, you know, the Vietnam War and what it was Mm -hmm. costing us at home. And so these are not new concepts. This idea that you you have to have a very strong and very focused domestic and foreign policy that is aimed toward a coherent goal. And that coherent goal is to is to achieve progress at home and abroad. Mm-hmm. And it is possible. But you but you can't do it just casually and you can't just, you know, flip from election to election, you know, hoping that everything's gonna turn out fine. Gotcha. Um, no. That's why we consider ourselves as political parties. Yes. Um, one last question for you, John Nichols. Does the book, Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, have a happy ending? It does. I end up in the last line. is uh, it's been, it, One of Wallace's great struggles uh, was in Detroit, where he did fight, you know, spoke out against racism incredibly effectively. And uh, it, while writing the book, I went to Detroit with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Uh-huh. And uh, we talked about the future of the Democratic Party. And the last line of the book, she's talking about the era when Roosevelt and Wallace were fighting for an economic bill of rights and beginning to scope out, you know, these much broader, bolder visions for the post-World War II era. And she said, I want to be that party again. Mm. All right. Speaker um, AOC uh, and eventually President AOC. I think <laughs> that's, that's the she's way we need to go. She's young enough to be bold. She certainly is. All right, John Nichols, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much for being here. The book is The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, The Enduring Legacy of Henry Wallace's Anti-Fascist, Anti-Racist Politics. John Nichols, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Honored to be with you, Nicole. For me too. It's always a pleasure to talk with John Nichols. And that brings us to the end of another edition of the broadcast. Brad and Desi will be back next time. And I'm sure I'll see you again soon. But in the meantime, feel free to visit me over at NicoleSandler.com. That's where I get my show and all kinds of other goodies. And there's no paywall there. So go explore. Have fun. Thank you for listening. I'm Nicole Sandler, echoing Brad's sentiment as he signs off every day when he says, Good luck, world, because we really need it now.